You're listening to the Hillside Pulpit, a ministry of Hillside Baptist Church. This is Pastor Chad Henley, and I want to thank you for allowing the Hillside Pulpit to be part of your spiritual journey. If this podcast has blessed you in any way, would you consider leaving a five-star review on your podcasting app? That will help us get the word out to others. And we invite you to join us to worship the King at the Hill. But today, as we continue through the book of Acts, we're, gonna, we're arriving in Acts chapter 15. And uh, today we're going to see uh, a, a very pivotal point in the book of Acts as we talk about missions being at stake. Missions being at stake. And I'll explain a little bit more about that in a moment, but let's pray together one more time before we get going. King Jesus, Lord, we are here today because of you. You are the king of the hill. You are king of Hillside Baptist Church. This is not merely our church. This is your church, and we want to be surrendered and submitted to you in all things. God, I thank you for the privilege of being part of this church. God, and we just pray that you would lead us. You're the shepherd. We are the sheep of your pasture. So lead us, great shepherd, to the green pastures and still waters of your grace. Bless us today, Lord, as we come expectant to hear from you. Lord, guard my tongue from error or anything unhelpful, Lord, and just make our hearts uh, moldable and pliable lumps of clay uh, in the kind but firm hands of the potter. We're looking to you today in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. All right, so imagine, imagine in order to be saved, you had to become a vegan and believe in Jesus. Would that make Christianity a little bit harder sell? Imagine if you had to keep the lights turned off all day on the certain day of the week and believe in Jesus to be saved. Imagine if a certain group of Christians, very culturally different than you, came and said, hey, you have to become like us and believe in Jesus to be saved. Would things like these hinder the gospel? Would it hinder Christian missions in the world? In other words, is the gospel Jesus plus this or Jesus and that? Or is Jesus alone enough? There's a controversy that arose in the early church, and it wasn't a small matter because Paul believed that the very gospel itself was at stake. The gospel itself, and of course his mission as an apostle, a proclaimer of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Is the gospel alone enough, or do we have to add on a bunch of rules and traditions too? This is the question that was relevant then and is very relevant for us today as we talk about missions at stake from Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Uh, If you're able and willing, let me invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We're going to read Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, 
and he brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe, and God who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual morality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. <coughs> then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Bersabbas, uh, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling to your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you, with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the, for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual morality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So, that, so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others. Also, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right, so missions is at stake here, and we're going to explore this passage under three headings. Number one, missions threatened. Missions threatened. Number two, missions vindicated. Missions vindicated. Number three, missions safeguarded. Missions safeguarded. First, we're going to look at missions threatened. Okay, so what's going on here? So we have seen over the past several weeks, Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, 
the Holy Spirit told the church of Antioch to set apart Paul and Barnabas for this mission, to proclaim the name of Christ to the ends of the earth. And through uh, trial and opposition, they saw many come to faith, and many churches were established in the region of Phrygia and southern Galatia. And then they have returned to Antioch, uh, and, the, and the whole church was able to rejoice at what God had done through Paul and Barnabas. Now some time passes from that from that moment, and apparently the word gets out about Paul and Barnabas' mission work. <coughs> because, while we might not have even thought about it, there were some very conservative Jewish Christians who were part of the strictest sect of Judaism, namely the Pharisees, the same group of people that gave Jesus so much problems during his earthly ministries. ministry. But we know a number of them converted to Christianity after the, the, uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. But they have this problem with this gospel that Paul and Barnabas are proclaiming, okay? And so these, some of these brothers come down from Jerusalem, uh, and they travel north to Antioch, and they arrive uh, there, and they have what Luke calls no small dissension and debate with Paul and Barnabas about the nature of the gospel that they proclaim. Now, no small dissension and debate is just a really understated way of saying they had a knockdown, drag out Baptist deacons meeting about this issue. All right, and what were they saying? They got Paul and Barnabas so bent out of shape. Well, it was pretty drastic. They were saying that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, that was uh, obviously unsettling uh, and uh, disturbing to Paul and Barnabas. And this issue had to be dealt with. And so the church at Antioch sent them to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders to hammer this issue out once and for all. <clears throat> and when they arrived there and they began debating it again, uh, it says in verse 5 there, uh, another way of what the, the Pharisees were, were saying. They were saying it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. All right, so what's going on here and why is it such a big deal? Well, again, you can never forget, um, and hopefully you're doing your uh, annual read through the Bible reading plan. There's copies in the back. There's copies in the back. You can pick up one. All right. You're reading through the Old Testament, and you recognize, hey, the, literally the whole Old Testament is about the Jewish people. So, you know, what's the deal, right? That seems kind of a big deal. That seems kind of important. And, of course, it is, right? When Adam and Eve fell and sin entered the world, God really orchestrated his plan to save humanity, to save fallen humanity, and his plans began by the choosing of one man out of all humanity, a man named Abraham. And he promised him that in him, in you, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so literally the entire Old Testament is the story of the Jewish nation and God fulfilling his plan so that through the Jewish nation, God would bless the whole world by bringing salvation to the whole world through a Jewish Messiah. And so, the entirety of the Old Testament is built around this principle that if you're going to be part of God's people, you have to be part of the Jewish people. Now, Jewish identity is inextricably linked with the Old Testament law uh, that God gave them on Mount Sinai. It was that law which set them apart from the world, which made them God's holy people. It was, it was what we call the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was the rules, the, the terms of the relationship that the Jewish nation had in order to maintain their relationship with God. If they would keep the terms of the covenant, then they would be God's people and God would be their God, okay? 
And so that's how it worked. And so for thousands of years, the identity of, of being part of God's people meant obedience to the totality of the Jewish law. For males, that meant being circumcised, okay? And then for everyone, it meant obedience to the sacrificial laws, the food laws, the purity laws, okay? No pork chops, no bacon, okay? That was what, that's how it worked, all right? Now, so, so really, it's not that surprising then when we discover that Jewish Christians, uh, you know, now that, now that Christianity has come, Christ has come, he's, he's died, he, he's been raised, he's, been, he's ascended into heaven, right? We shouldn't be su- surprised that there are some Jewish Christians who just assumed that if you want to be saved by the Jewish Messiah, you must first become Jewish. And so it's really not that surprising, okay? Ne- nevertheless, all right, it, I mean, is that the case? And, and Paul and Barnabas and Jesus, for that matter, very clearly say no. In fact, on one account, you know, Jesus said it's not what goes into the body, but what, comes, what goes into the mouth, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. And so, and Mark literally comments there that Jesus was declaring all foods clean. And so the point is, is that, you know, what's the, is, is it Jesus and something else, or is it just Jesus, right? And so the lesson for us today is this. We cannot add our own traditions or our own cultural preferences to the gospel. In other words, we can't, make, we can't make the gospel more strict than God made it, right? We don't have the right to do that, right? Notice what they weren't saying. They, they weren't saying, they weren't arguing, well, Christians can keep the law. Well, they could. Lots of the Jew, most of the Jewish Christians did keep the law, and that didn't stop them from being Christians. It wasn't a question of could you keep the law. It was a question of did you have to keep the law? Now, that's two very different questions. All right? The stakes are much higher there. And they were saying that the Gentiles had to keep the law to be saved. All right? And so the point for us is that we have to be careful not to be stricter than God with his own gospel. All right? To use a controversial example, maybe I shouldn't, but I'm going to. <laughs> All right? Uh, alcohol. Right? What about alcohol? Well, I personally don't drink, and I could tell you why I don't drink. But when we became Hillside, we removed the requirement of teetotalism or total abstention from Cottondale's church covenant. Well, why did we do that? Because, because I'm not ready and willing, and I don't think most of us are either here, to say that you cannot be a faithful Christian and, and consume alcohol in moderation. I'm not ready to say that. I can't point to his pastors and verse to say you have to abstain from alcohol, and believe in Jesus to be saved. And unless we as a church are ready to excommunicate people because they have a glass of wine a week, I don't think we should demand more of people than God does. Okay? What about how we dress? What about if we have tattoos? What if we're about to wear a coat and tie? What about a kind of music, right? We have to be aware that there are things that are tradition and that are cultural preferences and that nothing's wrong with them, and we can debate the merits of things, and I'm all for having vigorous, heated, biblical, you know, conversations about what we should and shouldn't do as Christians. I'm all for that. But when push comes to shove, the question we're asking is, do you have to do this and believe in Jesus to be saved? All right? And, I, and the answer, I think, and what Paul fought tooth and nail over was to say, no, why? Because missions was at stake. And the reason for this, the reason why this is so important, the reason why we can't add on our own cult. Remember what Jesus condemned the Pharisees for? 
Remember what he said? He said, he said, you, you, you proclaim as you proclaim the commandments of men as the command of God. The traditions of men as the command of God. And he condemned them for that, right? Because they said that you had to do all these things. All right? And that's what this is what Paul was arguing over so much about. And the reason for this, okay, the reason why we can't add to the gospel is because of this, because the gospel is already offensive enough. It is, right? If you understand the gospel properly, you will be offended. Because what does the gospel say to everybody? The gospel says, you're a fallen sinner under God's wrath that needs, to, that needs God's mercy. That's what the gospel says. That's pretty offensive, all right? If you can swallow that, you, that's a big pill, all right? But if you can embrace that, right, if you, can, if you can receive the mercy of God through turning from your sin and exercising faith, in it, look, look, there's a lot of things that Christians that are clear in Scripture that we must do, that we must obey. God calls us to holiness. God calls us to obedience. We are to be a holy, set-apart people. And there's a lot, and there's a whole, that's, you know, there's a lots of sermons that could be preached on Christian ethics and how we live holy lives as Christians. It's already hard enough to be a Christian. We don't need to make it harder by adding on things that just seem right to us. We don't have the right to toy with the gospel. We don't have the right to add to the gospel. Why? Because too much is at stake. Because if we go overseas to tell people how they can be saved in Jesus, and then we say, oh, yeah, and you got to become like me first, and then you can become like Jesus, that ruins our whole mission. So the gospel is offensive enough, and so missions was at stake, and so they fought for it. So number one, missions threatened. Number two, missions vindicated. Missions vindicated. So... There was this group of people who was arguing for this, and, uh, and for Paul and Barnabas, this was intolerable because Paul actually saw it as proclaiming a different gospel, right? Uh, there's debate about this, but I feel pretty confident that the book of Galatians was written before, shortly before this Jerusalem council. And if you read the book of Galatians, this is the exact issue that Paul is dealing with, okay? He is dealing... so. Because Galatians, all right, the, his first missionary journey was to the region of Galatia. And so these are the gospel that he's preached. And then Paul hears that some people have showed up in his churches that he planted, all right, and was telling them that they got to keep the law and he, upsetting all the work that Paul did. And so Paul was pretty irate about it. I'm not going to lie. You read the book of Galatians, he's pretty upset, all right? In fact, in Galatians 1.8, Paul says, but if even we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So in other words, Paul said that if even he came back to them and preached something different than he preached the first time, let him be accursed. Because the gospel can't change. The gospel doesn't change. It's either, it's either by the grace of God or it's not. Right? In fact, Paul was so upset about this issue in chapter 5, verse 11 of Galatians. He said, but... But if our brothers still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves, castrate themselves, all right? What's the point? The point is, is that this was, this was something, if we are saved by works plus Jesus, that's a different gospel. And so when all this is presented to the apostles and elders, they have a massive debate about it. And then eventually Peter stood, stands up, and he has something to say. And if we've been paying attention to the book of Acts so far, we know exactly what Peter's going to say because it's the account of, 
of what the account of Peter and Cornelius was repeated over and over and over again already in the book of Acts because it was so massively important. And so we know what Peter's going to say, that in the early days of the Christian church, Peter received a vision of a sheet descending from heaven with all these unclean animals, and God told Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter said, no, Lord, nothing unclean has ever entered my mouth. And God told Peter what God has declared clean, do not call unclean. Happened three times, and then the sheet went back up into heaven. And Peter, and then immediately after that, what happened? Some Gentiles knock on the door. Because what's God saying? God is saying, what, God, what I'm now calling clean, don't call unclean. Gentiles now become clean by what? By faith in Jesus Christ. So when, so when, um, and so, this is, so, so that's what happened, right? And so that's what it says there in Acts uh, chapter 15, verses 8 through 11. This is what Peter says. It says, God who knows the heart bore witness to them by doing what? By giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having what? Having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So notice, when when Peter went into Cornelius' house, which remember, he wasn't supposed to do, but he did it because God told him to, right? Peter went to Cornelius' house and he preached the gospel, all right? When did Cornelius and his household receive the Holy Spirit? After they kept the law? When they believed in Jesus, they received the Spirit, <coughs> right? And remember, <coughs> sorry, God, oh, my goodness. <coughs> Rebuke thee, Satan. All right. The, the, they, when they believed in Jesus, they what? They received the Spirit in the, in the clear way, probably spoke in tongues the same way at Pentecost, all right? And so they knew Without a shadow of a doubt, the what? The Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit, right? So why is that so important? Because of this. Because reception of the Holy Spirit is the indisputable sign that one has been accepted by God. If you have the Holy Spirit, you are saved. That's all there is to it. That's, what it, that's literally what it means to be saved, is to have the Holy Spirit, right? So Peter didn't circumcise Cornelius. Cornelius didn't start keeping the Jewish law, and then God, and then God gave them the Spirit. No, God gave them the Spirit when they believed in Jesus. And it said, and Peter there in verse 9 says, when they believed in Jesus, what happened? God cleansed their hearts by faith. Right? What's the human problem? We got messed up, sick, dirty hearts. How does God solve that problem? He cleanses it. When does he do that? When we believe in Jesus. He comes into our hearts. He cleanses our hearts. He takes out that heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. To, and he gives us his Holy Spirit, which in, enables us and empowers us to love and to serve and to obey God from the heart, right? So what, in fact, Peter said that requiring Gentiles to keep the law would be tantamount to putting God to the test, right? When you putting God to the test, well, you know, if I draw a line on the floor and I tell my, one of my children, don't, don't cross that line, and they just stick a little toe out and just go, Deek. guess what? You putting daddy to the test, right? If God, if God has drawn a line somewhere and we just kind of, you're putting God to the test. Well, God, what, what, is, what is Peter saying? Look, he's saying, look, God has already told us. 
By, by giving Cornelius and the Gentiles the Holy Spirit apart from the law, he's already told us what to do. Now he's already drawn the line. Now you want to go back and cross it? That's a bad idea. You're putting God to the test. By refusing to accept what God has already demonstrated, they, they're putting God to the test. So in other words, as Peter put it, we believe that we'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Bless you, kind brother. In other words, hear me now, there's only one way to be saved. There's no two ways of salvation. There isn't one way for the Jews and one way for the Gentiles. <coughs> the ground is level at the foot of the cross. If anyone is saved, it is because they are saved by the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we're saved. And if Peter's testimony isn't enough, another spiritual heavyweight weighs in, and that is James, Jesus' half-brother. Now, James's testimony is important because from church history we understand that James was actually, he was a Jewish Christian, obviously, and he was actually a very uh, zealous keeper of the law to the point that he even had respect of the unbelieving Jewish people there in Jerusalem. He was very zealous for the law. So if anyone was going to support the Pharisees, you would think it would be James, but he doesn't. Because just as Peter gave a proof from past experience of what God did in the past, James gives a proof of, this, of the Gentiles coming into the one people of God. He gives proof from Scripture. He cites uh, the Greek translation of Amos chapter 9, which it says there in verses uh, uh, 15 and 15, uh, 16 through 18. He says, After this I will return... And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So in other words, in other words, it's not just, it's not just that God has testified in the present through the experience of Peter that the Gentiles are coming in apart from the law, but actually scripture itself from ancient times past already foretold that at the restoration of God's people, what, it said, what, he, what he calls here the, the reestablishment of the rebuilding of David's tent, right? That at the, the reestablishment of God's kingdom, because David was Israel's king, right? At the reestablishment of God's kingdom in history, that that time would coincide also with the inbringing of the Gentiles uh, uh, into the one people of God. That's what the Old Testament scripture said. Well, what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus said, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the time of the, the rebuilding of David's tent, the, the time of the reestablishing of the kingdom of God came with the coming of Jesus Christ, which meant that at the same time, the Gentiles would be brought in to the people of God. So what's the point? The point is, let's not put God to the test, right? <coughs> let's proclaim the one true gospel to the world. The gospel is offensive enough. We don't have to add to it, right? We don't have to make people look like us and, and, and act just like us and believe in Jesus to be saved, right? We need to preach the gospel of free grace to anyone who will receive it, who will believe in Jesus Christ and have God cleanse their hearts by faith. So number one, missions threatened. Number two, missions vindicated. And then finally, number three, missions safeguarded. Missions safeguarded. So since the church discerned that the Gentiles are not required to become Jews in order to be saved, 
they still give some instructions to the believers, and they're written there in verses 19 through 21. It says to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual morality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. Verse 21, for from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Okay? So um, the point there is that if the apostles and elders decided that the Gentiles don't have to keep the law, then why do they still give them these instructions? Okay? So that's a good question, I think, has a good answer. All right? It says, first of all, and we'll look at each one, it says, first of all, that the Gentiles are supposed to avoid things polluted or associated with idolatry. All right? Well, of course, um, you know, the first commandment is you shall have no other gods besides me, before me. All right? So that the, even though the first commandment, strictly speaking, is part of the Old Testament, Old Covenant law, that's a timeless moral, that's a timeless moral principle that applies to all people in all places in all times because the brute fact of reality is that there is only one God. And so to give to anything else the praise or adoration of worship that belongs to the only one true God is wrong for all people in all times and all places. Okay, so, so he's, by commanding the Gentiles to avoid idolatry, he's just simply, uh, they're just simply asking them to do what all Christians must do in all times and all places, not merely just kind of keeping the law. Now, and of course, you know, the, the ancient Roman world was incredibly religious, right? They had pagan temples everywhere, okay? And, and so they worshiped all kinds of gods. And so that's why they command them to do that. Um, the next one it talks about is he says to avoid blood. Now, Pastor Ron, at the beginning of the service, read the passage about why they were to avoid blood because the blood symbolized the life, all right? And Jews were strictly uh, forbidden from uh, eating, eating the blood of animals, okay? And this ties in really closely with the next one, which is about uh, animals that have been strangled. Now, animals that have been strangled, the point there is that they've been killed in such a way that the blood has not been drained out of the animals. So it's closely related to the one um, avoiding with blood, okay? And so the, the thought there most likely is this. There's some evidence that uh, pagan sacrifices were sometimes strangled in this way, so he may just be telling them to avoid uh, just, uh, t- uh, just that another aspect of temple worship, okay? <coughs> or another thing is to do it out of sensitivity for Jewish, uh, be- uh, Jewish people in the area, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later. And then the final one that he says is to avoid sexual morality. So again, the command about sexual morality is very similar to the first command to avoid idolatry. And that is that even though the Old Testament law obviously had a bunch of commands about sexual, immoral, about sexual morality, all right, those commands are not tied strictly to the Jewish law and the Jewish nations. Those are timeless principles. Why? Because sex, sexual activity, was created by God way before the Jewish nation existed. It was created by God in the very beginning. God created Adam. God created Eve. God instituted the first marriage. Uh, he created sex to be a gift within that marital covenant. And so, therefore, from, for all humanity, not just for Jews, all right, any sexual activity outside of marriage is wrong. And so, and so all these things are... are the, and so, uh, the point is, is that he's just he's commanding them to do things that Gentiles may be more open to do or apt to do than a Jew, but that are applicable at all times and all places to all people. 
And then as far as the blood goes, most likely what's happening there is, is he's not wanting them to give offense, unnecessary offense, to the Jews where they live, right? And so, you know, if, if, if the Jews see these Christians over there, and remember where Paul went and proclaimed the gospel, there was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles that would be saved, right? And so if these new Jewish Christians, let's say these new Jewish Christians got saved, right? And then, uh, then all of a sudden their unbelieving Jewish friends see their, uh, their, their, their former Jewish friends or whatever, but they're Christians now, all right? You know, eating blood that they were never supposed to do as a Jew, all right? These, these unbelieving Jews would be like, look how bad and wicked and evil those are. Those people, those, those bad Jews over there, all right? And they'd, be, they'd have a really hard time believing the gospel because of their prior convictions. And so sometimes as Christians, all right, we have to deny ourselves freedoms in order to not give unnecessary offense to people as we proclaim the gospel to other people. And that's the point. That's the point here. It says freedom from the law of Moses doesn't mean freedom from the law of Christ. And so what have we been talking about today? We've been talking about this, this gospel, this free gospel of grace. Paul and Barnabas made ways because they proclaimed the gospel where you didn't have to become a Jew in order to be saved. But what did you have to do? You had to turn from your sins and trust in Christ. The gospel is offensive enough as it is. And that's that, and that's that invitation that's extended, that I'm extending to you today, just as Paul did 2,000 years ago when he proclaimed the gospel in the same way that I'm telling you now. All right? This, this, this kind of... Uh, uh, early church controversy, you know, it just seems like, oh, you know, what, what that, that was a big deal, but we don't, that doesn't really matter now, but it does matter. It matters today right now. It matters today because the point is, is that the Jews, they couldn't be good, they couldn't, they couldn't keep the law good enough. They couldn't be good enough for God. And guess what? You can't either. You can't either. That's the whole point of Jesus, right? If, if it was possible for me to become good enough to get into heaven, guess what? Jesus didn't have to come. He just wasted his time, wasted his life, you know, and I just need to get my act together. Problem is, I can't. I can't get my act together. Have you tried to get your act together? How's it going? Probably not good, right? The thing is, is to be saved, it is, the only way we can be saved is by the grace of God. Now, when the grace of God comes near to you, then guess what? He does change you. But it's not because of what I've done, but it's because of what Jesus has done. And that same invitation stands today. No matter what you've done, no matter how long you've done it. Yeah, Jesus, yeah, Jesus told people to count the cost. When you, when you turn from your sins to follow Jesus as your Lord, your leader, your Savior, your King, guess what? You're bowing, you're, bowing, you're bending the knee, right? You're, you're coming up under his lordship. You're coming in glad submission to the King of all kings. So, yes, you have to, Jesus does ask something from you. He, he asks everything. But what do you get in return? You get Jesus. It's a pretty good deal. And so, that's, but that's, that's the invitation. It's the grace of God. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's a gift. Forgiveness of sins. Admission into the eternal kingdom of God. Adoption into God's own family. And eternal life forever. Free gift received by faith. Alone. In Jesus Christ. And so if you haven't received that gift today, or even if you're just not sure, and you say, Pastor, I want to make sure, this is your opportunity. Turn from your sins, trust in Christ, embrace him, 
and be saved. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, Lord, these, uh, these, these controversies, Lord, in the early church, Lord, we recognize, looking back, that, that they, were, they were fought for a good reason. Lord, that in order to preserve for us, even now, us Gentiles in this room here, 2,000 years later, they were preserved for us so that we could know that we can be saved by grace. And Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful for the grace that you've shown me in my life, Lord. Lord, I know my sins. I know my shortcomings better than anybody in this room. And I know the unbelievable grace that you have lavished upon me. And I know also, Lord, how you have changed me and how it was only by your grace and by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that I am who I am today. And so, Lord Jesus, I just pray that maybe there's somebody in this room, God, and, and in their hearts, Lord, you're just, you're just drawing them and you're just convicting them. And maybe just in their heart, God, they just know that today they need to turn to you. They need to receive that grace, that cleansing of the heart that comes by faith. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would just, you would just grant them the grace at this very moment to turn from their sin to trust in you, to embrace you, to bow the knee to you as their Lord and their Savior and their King. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.